Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. this morning is the estimable John Cass, johncassnews.com. John, hey, thanks Dan. for joining us. Hey, yes. everyone. I rode my horse over, and my slip is on stallion, and uh, we're ready to go. Just a, a just a slight trot from uh, your uh, compound in the Hoosier State. And uh, Green Acres, as we call it. And uh, a shout-out to Osney, the Uber driver, uh, who got me here. So thank All you. All right, very good. A lot of stars, good tip, because I always tip. What is your, is your Uber rating higher than my Uber rating? Do, do you ever know. look at that? Know. What's your user rating? I don't know. I, I just started really using Uber. Oh, but you have people for that to to look at your user rating. <laughs> but you, uh, you, you, you'd asked me if I could fill in some other days, and they had mentioned one of the producers here mentioned that uh, maybe you guys would pick up the ride. So if you do, I can, I can uh, fill in easy, yeah, more easily. The, the rich getting richer. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. No, we don't I, like to spend our own money on things like. I would never take public transportation. You know why? Because there's too much public involved. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll run that up the flagpole with the brass here, yeah. and uh, I'm sure I'm sure we could arrange something. Cucumber sandwiches. Yeah, yeah of course. Ice tea. No. Yeah, of course. Sure. I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll get we'll get in touch with your people to get all the details. I know you're sort of a you know no green M and M's guy, and we don't Remove want an incident. the crusts. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, all right. We got to talk about uh, there's a lot of action yesterday on a range of issues, including the trouble that both Senate Republicans and House Republicans are having at hurting the cats. This was an amazing reversal. The uh, McConnell Senate Republican leadership reversal on legislation they sponsored and put Jim Langford on point to negotiate this statement from Senator John Barrasso. He's a Republican from Wyoming. He's the chair of the Senate Republican Conference and one of uh, Mitch McConnell's top guys. Listen to this statement. For three years, President Joe Biden and Senate Democrats fought every attempt to protect Americans from the crisis at our southern border. The results of the open border policy have been predictable and deadly. Senator Lankford worked relentlessly to change the course of this crisis. He fought for us to close the border and for return to policies to stop the flood of illegal immigration. Joe Biden and Senate Democrats failed him and failed the country. The proposed legislation does not meet most American standard of securing our border now. It doesn't force the Biden administration to end its abuse of current law. It leaves in place a number of Democrat-created initiatives or incentives that are fueling the crisis. President Biden and Senator Schumer will never accept the significant changes required for American safety and border security. And so on. Joe Biden will never enforce the border, and so on. Wait a second. 
Jim Langford, right. the guy you're crediting for his uh, tenacious negotiation, was out, uh, you know, for the last several days on the talk shows making the case that this legislation should go. And now it's Biden and Schumer failed the American people. You know, I don't, I don't smoke anymore, but it, but if I did. I would have I would have a delicious camel filter, and uh, maybe a medium sweet Greek coffee, and savor it while watching Mitch McConnell squirm because there's nothing squirmier than a combine boss when the combine is starting to turn on him. Well, that's just it, isn't it? I mean, although they call the it con- uniparty, they don't know what they're saying. Yeah, but I mean, but what's happening internally, right? You've had this revolt. It's not going anywhere. It's DOA in the House, and so they they got to figure out some uh, uh, position to which to retreat to then still uh, identify a path to getting sixty billion dollars to Ukraine, which is seems to be what McConnell is completely fixated on. But I just. And they probably feel bad for Langford because, of course, he's the human shield. The good soldier, he followed his leader, and the leader led him into a swamp. It's just amazing. So, so, I mean, think about the debate we were having up until this legislation dropped on Sunday. And now, you know, everybody's running away from this, uh, this deal that they're both sides that negotiated it were promoting and uh, then you got you got the big guy that's got to go out there. Well, well, if they're going to blame me for something I'd sign that they were part of the negotiation, then I'm going to blame not Mitch McConnell, but, of course, Donald Trump. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time and the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even know it helps the the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. So for the last 24 hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this proposal. And looks like they're caving. Frankly, they owe it to the American people to show some spine and do what they know to be right. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey dot pro text line. Speaking of spines, old man, can you and your friends ever once confront the so- white socialist boys who you're beholden to? Beholden to. You're releasing wave after wave of Hispanic, Latino immigrants into the cities of Chicago to benefit the white socialist power. But you have no concept about what damage you're creating to black people in Illinois, Chicago, and every other major city. Well, the argument is that uh, this legislation does make the... uh New, the new Marxist in charge of the Democrat Socialist Party upset that this is not something that they'll sign on to. This is an argument, by the way, that's being made. It was being made until, you know, yesterday 
by uh, so-called conservatives like Jim Lankford. I mean, uh, we had Noah Rothman on the show from National Review. He was essentially making the same argument. It's uh, The Wall Street Journal editorial page is making the same argument that you just heard from Biden. Yeah. Um, but it's just so but the, the amazing thing. So w- what was it that you didn't see if you're set of Republicans? I mean, the concern on this is the duplicitousness. That's one layer of it. The other is the political sense. I mean, remember, um, the, these are the people Mitch McConnell and his Senate leadership team that are a writing point with respect to Senate campaigns this cycle to try and put the Senate back in Republican hands for a, a reelected President Trump, if, if that were to transpire, expand the House, uh, the majority in the House, all of these things that we desire to see happen. And w- which part of the last several weeks was unclear to you? Which part of of Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and J.D. Vance and Rick Scott and others standing at a podium saying Ron Johnson, we had on the show last week, saying, first of all, we haven't seen the actual language. But if what is being reported is accurate, which, of course, it turned out to be, then this thing is going nowhere and should go nowhere. I mean, J.D. Vance, listen to J.D. Vance yesterday about this. Like, You had no idea this was going to receive such uh, such resistance that that what the Wall Street Journal editorial board was going to push Republicans to vote for something that they don't want to vote for? I and mean, what, what, do you understand what's happening in the country right now? Have you picked up a a, a paper or, uh, you know, we, dialed we, up the we, Internet we, lately? Mitch McConnell, listen, listen oh, to yeah. J, listen to J.D. Vance yesterday. Yeah. If you had a bill that said we're going to legalize 12 million illegal aliens, every single Republican, I hope, would vote against it. But we're not committing ourselves to voting for this thing just because we entered the negotiation. And the idea that we are, the idea, and you hear this from some of our leadership, and hopefully they will stop, the idea that we committed to supporting whatever came out of this negotiation is pure, unadulterated bullshit. We supported a negotiation to bring common sense border security to this country. We did not agree to a border fig leaf to send another $61 billion to Ukraine. Perfect. Is that coming through, Mitch, Senator Freeze Frame? Are you is that are you picking up that? There should be a revolt, you know, after a failure like this. And the failure is not just on Biden's part. It's not this to me is Mitch McConnell's failure on reading the room, reading the American people. You know, years ago he ran for election, defeating a Democrat with a ad running bloodhounds to try to find him i'd suggest you get a a bunch of bloodhounds and try to find mitch now because where's he where's mitch well and then on the other side of the congress on the house side uh all of this uh, effort to impeach homeland security dr evil ollie mayorkas and uh the House Republicans can't get that done. It's theater. Come on. Four uh, Republicans, uh, three that are germane, uh, voted against the resolution to impeach Mayorkas. Um, the fourth, Blake Moore of Utah, just voted against it for the purpose of preventing a tie so the issue could be reconsidered, can be Would brought you, back. If you're the, if you're the co- uh, congressman from Elk Grove Village, would you vote to 
to impeach Mayorkas? If I'm the congressman from Elk Grove Village, would I vote to impeach Mayorkas? Yes. Why wouldn't I? Uh, well, because I, I would argue that he's not the, uh, you know, like uh, Thomas Pynchon wrote, you can tickle the puppets, but you can't catch the master, at least that way. Well, and, and it's not, yes. it's not, Mayorkas is just a functionary. I understand. Boob, the, the, the person you, you want to get rid of, I want to get rid of, is uh, President of the United States. But I, would, I, 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 I wouldn't I, use impeachment to do that. Yeah, well, well, well I, I, I would in this situation. Um, I mean, the, the, the combination of his high crimes and misdemeanors, both in terms of that hillbilly crime family that he's at the top <laughs> of, as well as the, the border situation, I would. But, but with that, I, I, I've heard that argument before, but John, um, I'm sorry, when, when you're going after a crime family, you, you, you go after, you know, layers of leadership. And certainly, I mean, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on, on bureaucrats, but cabinet secretaries that are in league with the uh, principal to subvert the Constitution and to uh, commit a high crime and misdemeanor, in my estimation, which is the importation of millions of people from other countries in violation of federal law and constitutional responsibilities of the federal government. So, I, I, yeah, I, I will take out a top lieutenant. And then I will take you out. That's that's the point. Isn't that what prosecutors do in mob trials? What's well, the difference? They're doing it in Illinois. They're doing it in political trials. So I guess you should. They should apply their own standards to the federal government. Well, and, and Mayorkas has, has been like the face guy for this, and he's lied before Congress. On top of it, there's another. I mean, right. this is one of the articles of impeachment against him. And so, yeah, and it, it also just says, look, look, we are political killers we're serious we're going to use the powers that we have legitimately in the direction that we say we uh, believe in the direction that we say is consistent with our policy vision is consistent with the rule of law is consistent with upholding constitutional principles so i i don't understand i understand ken buck because ken buck is uh, off the reservation ken buck of colorado but the other two McClintock of California and Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who has aspirations to be somebody someday other than a congressman and the chairman of that select committee on the Chinese Communist Party voting against it. Uh, those boy that Mike Gallagher in particular. He's a, like a local guy for us. He's from Wisconsin, right? Is yeah. That... Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Uh, what's his deal? Uh, well, I, I don't really understand that. I think, you know, the arguments, oh, it sets a poor precedent. You know, this the setting precedent is um, a, a mood issue. The precedents have been set. The precedents were set when they impeached Trump the way they did twice over what they did twice. And I know, the well, that's a president and this is a cabinet secretary. And not, no, no, no. This is all a fruit of the poisonous precedent that. You set Democrats, socialists, when you did this with respect to Trump. So if you want detente on this, fine. We'll negotiate after the fact, after you feel some of the impact of the poisonous precedents oh, yeah. you set. Look, look, this whole thing that this deal, this border deal, 
Mitch McConnell likes it because it it undercuts Trump. Okay, he hates Trump. Well, yeah, well, well, and, but, 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 but I, this he's is hated, but, he's hated he's hated conservatives ever since the days of the Tea Party. Yeah, but this is but well, th- th- even if that's true, this is like a uh, nose for your face. I mean, yeah, y- you may hate him, but all you did was strengthen him. So, um, you know, where's the where's the judgment? Where's the real politic? You know, M- McConnell's a, a mechanic. He's a transactional guy. He wants to be majority leader ostensibly. It's tone deafness or it's yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's part tone deafness and part political tone deafness and part uh political blindness, uh, hate of Trump blinding him to what was sensible in this moment. Um, Carl in uh, Big Cabin, Oklahoma, who I think is in Wisconsin. I want to make, make a – yeah, I'm in Wisconsin. I want to make a point after I make the joke. I can imagine Mitch McConnell and uh, uh, Joe Biden sitting there eating ice cream talking about this bill and negotiating. It would be just – neither one are, are, are coherent anymore. Now, I want to make my uh, a really good point. This all goes back to uh, Reagan when he did the uh, you know the original uh, amnesty. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably between Reagan's time and uh, the uh, late nineties, you got fifteen million. Only then from once. the ni- late late nineties through uh, through uh, early you know up up to now, you got twenty million in here. And now with this bill, would be another. In ten years, at at, at five thousand a day, it'd be another twenty million. It's all about the census and congressional seats. That's forty million in those blue areas, and more congressional seats, ensuring Democrat power permanently. They need to change the census where it's done by citizens, not how many people are in your district that are not citizens. Thanks for the call, Carl. Brian, St. John, Indiana. Hey, neighbor. Hey, good morning. Uh, in terms of the border bill, Mike Braun is a hard no. Brian O. Young is allegedly a no, which is make me happy. But my question for you, Mr. Croft, is if it's a simple majority to pass this bill in the House, I don't know if that's the case. You tell me. But if it is, mm-hmm. how can we be so confident that it's set upon arrival when we have Republicans constantly straying from the pack and not voting in lockstep like the Democrats. That's all I got. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Brian. Well, uh, I don't think there's uh, much straying on this issue, uh, number one. Number two, I don't think after what's happened, there's going to be any incentive for any House Republican to pick this up and try and run with it with Democrats. And it's basically been... Uh, completely tubed. They've, they're, you know, per the Barrasso statement, uh, that damn that Joe Biden, uh, per that statement, you know, they're they're walking away from it now. Will they come, try to come back with something else? Of well, but you're on a clock now. Um, you know what else is is uh, Pagliacci Schumer really willing to give? They may come back with something else to try to backdoor that Ukraine funding that McConnell wants so much, but I don't think it's going to take the form of what you saw surrendered yesterday this is the morning show more chicago radio listeners are choosing this is chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer 
Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J this morning, John Cass, johncastnews.com, Chicago Way Podcast, all hey, of the Dan. above. Yes. Hey, Dan, just know, good morning and glad to be here. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. That's a, that's just a, it's just a top of the morning. Yeah, that's it. Just a oh, okay. salute. Yeah. All right, very nice. Uh, all right, so we, not since Jefferson dined alone has there been such a meeting of the minds. Jelly Belly. <laughs> BLM Brandon, Tony, 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 Queen Sugar, as some know her, Preckwinkle, uh, all came together uh, to have a definitive conversation about dealing with the migrants that have come to Chicago and Illinois to maintain our international reputation as a welcoming city, so they think. It's about protecting Pritzker during the Democratic National Convention. And I could just imagine him negotiating a hard bargain <laughs> with Tony and uh, the other moron with the pointy head. What's his name? Uh, Mayor Brandon. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I was uh, impressed by their entrance, um, you know, the showmanship uh, to set up the meeting. Together we're the Free Amigos! <coughs> Wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. Line. Wherever liberty is threatened, you'll... Wherever liberty is threatened, you will find... The Three Amigos! The gunplay was probably unnecessary, but uh, nonetheless... uh, Again, great showmen, which is why they're so popular, and uh, as well as substantive leaders, there's no question. They are coming together to deal with the injustice, obviously, what uh, Greg Abbott, the villain in this, uh, oh, in this, yeah. Yeah, this, this, this story, uh, what he is doing. Um, and also, you know, they're up against the clock on some of the things they've committed to, like... Um, Evicting migrants from the 28 shelters the city up the city set up by March 16th. You know, if you've been there uh, 
60 days that was extended. Uh, will they extend that again? Hmm. Here's uh, what uh, Jelly Belly had to say about this confab. Part of our regular meetings between the city, the county, and the state. And migrants. Talking about, yeah, the asylum seekers and making sure that we're taking good care. Good discussion and, you know, planning. So, you know, we've been doing this, as you know, with our staffs for quite some time now. And then, you know, regular intervals of meetings with the principals. Would you say that everyone got along well? Oh, yeah. We always do. Of course, they're the three amigos. They're friends, John. You... Friends coming together to solve problems for the people. You know that all three of them, and so do I. And I'm just telling you, from my point of view, I see that fat tub of guts called the governor terrified of the other two because he's always been terrified. He's like Commodus in real life. He's always been afraid. And in this case, he's afraid of them. Why is he afraid of them? he, He cannot... He cannot handle any kind of confrontation, particularly, and, you know, it holds that the one thing that liberals hate to be called is, especially white liberals, is anywhere near the race card, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. what, that's what, that's how he plays. He's like a totally, total, you know, bag of goo, and uh, he's afraid. And so they can bully him around, and all he wants to do is get through this convention, I guess. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line. Six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. Well, maybe this was one of the ideas that came out of that meeting. I don't know, it's probably planned a little bit in advance. Maybe this was something that uh, Pritzker just informed his mm-hmm. compatriots about to show how committed he is to um the sanctuary state status of Illinois. This is from IDES, the Illinois Department of Employment Security. Yeah. There's a webinar tomorrow. You might want to put this on your calendar. It's uh, 10 a.m. sharp. Are you an employer out there? Are you an HR professional? Are you a hiring manager? Are you a diversity and inclusion advocate? Well, that's everybody. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Integrating new arrivals in the workforce. Considerations for Illinois employers. Uh, right now in Chicago, I mean, this is, you know, no, actually taking advantage of or, you know, last resort type um, options. Uh, about 13,500 migrants in 28 active shelters. And uh, one of the things that's a problem, I mean, not for the three amigos, but what would technically be a problem under the law is many of them don't have work permits. I mean, in point of fact, uh, in the typical hagiographic Horatio Alger type of storytelling that you get from the NPR Times, state-run media, uh, you they profile these individuals to give you a sense, to try to give you the sense that this is representative of the entire migrant population. We know better, but certainly there are good people and they're economic migrants. That's a lot of them, right? As we say all the time on this show. Um, but there are other problems, too. You may have noticed in places, well, in Chicago with uh, uh, burglary gangs that are foreign-based, uh, Colombia, Venezuela, what happened in New York City with the cops, and it, there's other incidences. Actually, there's serious crimes with uh, in the Western countries that have 
allowed for these, and you call it invasion, I say importation. I, when it's sponsored by your own government, I don't know how you call it an invasion unless it's a, some sort of fifth column action. But uh, anyway, getting back to the NPR Times. On most mornings, Alfonso Carvajal grabs his bike and ventures out into unfamiliar parts of Chicago in search of apartments to rent. He gets lost, he gets cold, he gets frustrated. I get on my bike and I ride as far as my strength allows. There are times when I say, where am I? What's the area called? How do I get back? Mm -hmm. That's what happens every time Joe Biden goes out for a bike ride. Uh, Carvajal, his wife, and two children trekked here from Venezuela. They have no money and just a few belongings. I Okay, so let me just stop there. Just I, I hate to, to ask questions in you know this fairy tale that the Sun-Times wants to tell. So he has no money and he's riding his bike around looking for an apartment. With what money? Right. I, I mean, I know obviously the city has a rental assistance program, but that wasn't included here. And you'd think they want to profile the uh, uh, generosity of the political class in Chicago with other people's money when it comes to rental assistance for right. these migrants, but they don't. Hmm. Uh, finding a housing is the most important thing. We just can't finish our time in this shelter and be thrown out on the streets. It's humiliating. An entire family on the streets, says Alfonso. He um, doesn't ha speak English. He doesn't have a work permit, credit history, or bank account. And you say, well, that, I feel bad for that guy. I do, too. If he, you know, genuinely here with his family seeking about better I feel bad for him, too. And you know who put him in this precarious position? Partly him and partly the politicians that we elect in Illinois, like the three amigos, who were happy to amplify what was coming from Biden, uh, the mm -hmm. Biden administration, and woo people from the across the world here on false promises. You know that that can't be said enough. The inhumane people are the people who said, "Come over, and this is the land of milk and honey, and we will provide." And now Alfonso Carvajal is riding his bike around Chicago with no money, no work permit, looking for work and a place to live. That's on the three amigos. That is not on people who are serious about border security. Anyone take, if you're a Democrat and you vote Democrat, you're responsible for all that's going on with these people. Biden said right before the election, you know, you have the bite. It's, it's 14 seconds. I was just looking at it the other day. He wanted people to search the border. Search the border. This is... To show people who we are. We're Americans. Search the border. Search the border. Whatever. Okay, so they searched it. And he took down every barrier that Trump had put up there to make the surge even more surgy. And now when they can't make it here, whose fault is that? Is it some? Is it the white guy in the western suburbs? in Western Springs who perhaps did not vote for uh, the mayor of Western Springs? Is it his fault? Dad? Well, and, well, well, right. And by the way, nice use of the invented word, Sergi. I like that. Yeah. Um, the, um, the other thing, too, is lawlessness begets lawlessness. So we support lawlessness, and so now we're going to codify lawlessness, if you will. It's sort of oxymoronic with an emphasis on moronic. But, I mean, this IDES seminar, uh, 
integrating new arrivals in the workforce, considerations for Illinois employers. So they're pushing you know, higher migrants. So what what kind of incentives are going to be provided? What kind of programs does the state going to roll out to underwrite the illegal employment of migrants in this country? Even the, uh, the you know, Pritzker, very careful, call, the, the asylum seekers, oh, they're all asylum seekers. They're not, but okay, fine. So the asylum seekers without work permits can't work. So, so what, what's, what is, what is this IDES program? Is anybody curious? I am. Hmm. Jim and LaGrange, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan. Hey, John. How are you? Hey. So, so did, uh, did City Hall experience a power surge when the three of those folks entered the room together? I'm just curious on that. And, and I think they need to name that kind of conference, like, you know, the conference at Yalta, where you had, like, Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt all coming mm-hmm. together. And, and, and just as a, as a quick side to that, uh, I'd like your opinion on which, uh, which of, of the three, Pritzker, uh, Preckwinkle, and, and BLM Brandon, were, were the three, Stalin, Churchill, and, uh, and Roosevelt. Love they your were, opinion. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. They were all Stalin. Yeah. There was no representative of the West in that meeting. Perfect. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, Mike in DuPage County. Yes. Uh, hello? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Could you uh, attempt to contact all the people running for the U.S. House of Representatives in Northern Illinois and ask the people running against, like Sean Caston, would you have voted for House Bill HR2? Would you have voted to impeach my orcas? And really see what the bellwetter is, because, you know, they're clearly more interested in adding constituency for their jigsaw puzzle district that allowed them to exist in the first place more than they are protecting the citizens of the state of Illinois. Thanks for the call, Mike. Uh, Phil and Darian. Hey, good morning, guys. John, thanks for filling in today. Hey, thank you. Uh, yeah, so why, I'm wondering, Dan, um, New York has, like, what, 130,000 illegals compared to our, what, 13? Is that right? Yeah, I think I, that's 13 in the shelters, but I think we're more in the, I think some 25 to 35 have been delivered here, 25 to 35,000. But, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically in the ballpark. So why does New York have so many more than us? I mean, what's it going to take for us to catch up and smoke them i mean why can't we have uh half a million totally agree thanks for the call phil great point there's no reason we should play second fiddle to new york you know we got it right well, totally we need to get rid of the unions that we don't like and uh public workers like uh, the electricians are getting screwed and lately and there are people being laid off i know a couple of uh, electricians that are in the laid-off position, and uh, all the economic upheaval, you have not yet seen it. You have not yet seen what's going to happen as a result of all these people coming and the Democrats well, trying to buy constituents. There's something called skills that they can't really confer like a knighthood, you know, like a tap on the shoulder. You have to be able to reduce the power and bring power from those high ta- high power lines into into a town without into a house without killing somebody and yourself. But that'll be they'll I I'm sure they'll solve it somehow because they have to 
hire people. They have to put people on the payroll. Well, one of the things that that that, that may go largely unseen, right. uh, uh, depending on state programs that are being rolled out, and uh, like New York is continuing to roll out programs. So, so are we repurposing COVID money as BLM branded Johnson stuff? Mm-hmm. But the thing that will be seen are things like that mob beating up those cops in New York. Oh, yeah. yeah. Things things like that 62-year-old woman, if you haven't seen this yet, who was violently dragged across the pavement by this uh, moped criminal enterprise in she, New York. She stopped suddenly when yeah. she smashed into, when her hip smashed into a light pole. Yeah, that's right. But is it 62 broken? Sixty-two-year-old woman. I I don't know the, her her the, her condition, but it was it's jarring when you see it and you think this is a sixty-two-year-old woman being dragged like Could she was. Yeah. Uh, so there, the sophisticated criminal enterprise reporting made up of newly arrived migrants and living in the New York City shelter systems. Uh, they're a moped gang. Um, they are, according to uh, New NYPD. They've been at least linked to at least 62 separate instances of grand larceny across New York City and including this uh, event that we're describing where the 60-year-old woman was dragged on the pavement by a moped. Mm -hmm. Here's a mayor, Eric Adams, taking a break from uh, talking about uh, himself in uh, terms of, you know, Jesus Christ. so he's the Christ child and, and, you know, extolling the virtues of the appointments he's made to to make New York Poor City nephew, yeah. to make. Yeah. Make, well, but also to make New York City um, the national leader in chocolate <laughs> leadership, if that makes sense. Eric Adams on uh, this gang problem, crime problem that he has willingly imported. Don't forget that they're willingly doing this in Chicago and New York. Listen, we saw what happened on the video. And uh, there are 172,000 migrants asylum seekers who are here. Overwhelmingly, many are here just want the same thing all of our families want. But those who think they're gonna come to our country, break our laws, assault our cops, that was not only assault on an individual, that was assault on our system of public safety. They're going to use organized method to commit crimes. It just can't happen, and it won't happen, not in New York City. It is happening. But while you're in this police department. This is not about the migrants and asylum seekers. This is about those who break the law. It doesn't matter where you're from and where you came from. You break the law, you're going to feel the full weight of this department. So let's go get these guys. Really? We're here in the location Here's of the, the Bronx. Assistant superintendent. The gun violence team, along with the grand larceny team, just conducted a search warrant here. Migrants preying on vulnerable New Yorkers in New York City. Pattern 156. Over 60 victims committing crimes as robberies, grand larcenies, purse snatches. Guess what? This department, this agency is not going to tolerate that. We will find you. Anyone that commits any act of harm against one of our New Yorkers, we're going to find you, we're going to arrest you, we're going to bring you to justice. Fred, you got anything to say? No, great job. Every, everything was handled. Everybody left safe. And yeah, we yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, a lot of tough Does talk. anyone ask, does anyone, when I hear these, these morons and fools talk about how tough they're going to be, mm-hmm. 
Does anyone ask, or any reporters, if there are any left, do they ask the question, uh, and what about, like, if this is Cook County, what about Kim Fox? What about Clayton Harris III? Neither of them want to put people in jail. What about Alvin Bragg? They never ask that question, do they, about the prosecutors? Well, if, fair enough. Prosecutors and judges, we right, right. They they deserve a lot of attention too. But but I mean, just the mentality. This 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 Eric Adams. We hear this rap all the time. You know, we're not going to tolerate. It doesn't matter where you're from. Oh, yeah, yeah. You break the law, and you know, yeah. oh, sorry. all that all that bravado. Yeah. I, the question is, yeah. you have enough problems with repeat violent offenders in New York that are American citizens. Why would you willingly import more people who are not interested in upholding or living under the law, who are interested in preying on people? I know the, a lot of them and then this and that. What, you have no idea who's who. That's part of the problem. Because, and neither does the, the administration people, you support. Dan, so why would you do Dan, this? come on. Because the people, the Venezuelan prisoners, the gang members of Venezuela – who go to the prisons there, need as much love and kindness from the Democrat as do the uh, prisoners here. They have to be allowed to pray. It's like if you have vampires, you have to let them come out and attack blood. I mean, honestly, like the the uh, the, the leadership of MS-13, the leadership of Trend de Aragua, right. they must watch these clips from people like Eric Adams and yeah. the leadership, the three amigos in this state, yeah. and just say, man, we are going to have our run of these places. Yeah, we are going to own New York. We are going to own Chicago. They must they must look at it and think this. They are going to they are going to own New York. They're going to own Chicago because when they start coming up against these gangs, well, you know, when, when uh, like when Black Lives Matter came up against 26th Street, you know, it's that they didn't go to 26th Street. And the same thing with the rest of these gangs. When they come, when when a soft gang comes up against a tough one, guess what? The tough one, the soft one, get off the corner. Chuck in Delavan, Chuck yeah. in Delavan, Wisconsin. I, I like the the article you were reading. I want to know where the guy that was riding the bike. Where did he get the bike? Because if I go to Walmart, uh, it's like a hundred and a half, a buck seventy five to get a bike. So then yeah. our, she should have asked, "Where'd you get your bike?" And and then uh, you know that's all I had to comment on for that. Thanks for the call. I found it. You know, yeah. these things fell off a truck. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and in Framie J this morning, John Cass. JohnCassNews.com. Hello, Dan. Good. John, thanks for joining us, of course. Great to have you. And uh, John, um, Tucker Carlson is uh, set to interview... Vlad Putin, the murderous Russian autocrat. You've heard of him. Yes, I remember when uh, the left hated autocrats and now they en- embrace them, apparently. And Tucker is on the right, and I guess he's like a Putin lover too, right? Well, they hate, they, they like some autocrats and they don't like others, depending on the um, sort of domestic political value that... Right. Uh, yeah, you know, like Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. It's an nice. autocrat we like. Uh, Vlad Putin, autocrat we don't like because we uh, we had this conspiracy theory about Trump being a Manchurian candidate of Putin's, and then Putin invaded Ukraine, and then we all put Ukraine flags on our social media but accounts. And so we like we we don't like Putin, but we do like Maduro. And wait a minute, you, you I know. still mm-hmm. ha- haven't figured out. So what did they do with all the Pulitzer prizes that were? awarded to the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post on this so-called Russia investigation that became a so-called hoax, Russia Gate. And yeah. now I don't understand where we are. What what happened to it? it it's in the all those uh, Pulitzer prizes are in a museum right next to Obama's Nobel Peace Prize. Oh. Okay. It's based on, you know, potential. Yeah, potentially they could grow into real live journalists someday. Maybe they could go. They could put them in the uh, Hall of Whispers in the Obama Palace that he's building, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I can't wait for uh, Obama Land to uh, you know get uh, up and running. That's going to be a real crown jewel on the lakefront, um, especially yeah. with the paper giant paper mache head of Obama at the top of the building with glowing eyes that turn and find any conservative. Even they look out to northwest Indiana, well, they'll find me. Well, Daniel. I Sauron. Yeah, oh, oh, nice Lord of the Rings. Well, well, uh, well you did yeah. it yesterday. You I, well, I did it because Walter Russell Meade did it. Right. Yeah, I was flying in formation with Walter Russell Meade. Well, on this Putin interview, now, you know, again here, um, I, I like Tucker. I think he's provocative. I think he's an independent thinker. I think when he had that show on Fox, he tackled subjects that a lot of other people would, most of the rest of the legacy media, if you will, would stray away from. Um, but it doesn't mean I, I always agree with him. I mean, he did say some things in the uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine that were curious that I disagreed with, for example— he basically said that he's not picking sides with between Russia and Ukraine. Well, well, I'm picking sides. I mean, a, a, a strong Russia is a threat to America. I don't want a murderous dictator, Soviet KGB, 
to have um, the run of Eastern Europe. Um, so, so no, I, I I want him to be repelled. I want him to be contained. To excuse my George Kennan. Um, so I, I I I I have a side, but that doesn't mean that I we should do whatever our side demands we do, whether it makes sense for our interests or not. And this is where I think people get hung up. Like if you don't write blank checks for Raytheon through Mitch McConnell is what you're talking about. Yes. Well, well, but 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 I mean, it's just it's sort of the just the philosophy of the left. It's yeah. just like and, and and sometimes some on the right, too, where if you're not like a, if you're not just um, genuflecting before the principle of whatever organization or state that we're supporting, writing a blank check, asking no questions, following orders, then you're complicit with the other side. It's the most sort of silly line of reasoning. It um, is not really worthy of adult conversation, but yet it dominates our politics. It's a bit frustrating. So anyway, my point is to say, you know, so some of Tucker's rhetoric with respect to Russia, Ukraine, I'm not on board with. I've said so at the time. I'm just repeating for the context here because right. we're going to play the um, the preview he gave of the Putin interview and his rationale to do it. And it's uh, it's four minutes. so It's a little bit long for radio purposes, but it's worth it because I think this is really well constructed. And if he takes this approach in the interview, then I think there could be some real value from it. And that's what, you know, journalists and and uh, show hosts are supposed to do, try and extract value from people that uh, they have access to that not everybody does to better inform our conversations, our understanding of the world, the policy choices we make. That's sort of the point. And Tucker Carlson gets it. We're in Moscow tonight. We're here to interview the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. We'll be doing that soon. There are risks to conducting an interview like this, obviously. So we've thought about it carefully over many months. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. These are not small changes. They are history-altering developments. They will define the lives of our grandchildren. Most of the world understands this perfectly well. They can see it. Ask anyone in Asia or the Middle East, what the future looks like. And yet the populations of the English-speaking countries seem mostly unaware. They think that as nothing has really changed. And they think that because no one has told them the truth. Their media outlets are corrupt. They lie to their readers and viewers. And they do that mostly by omission. For example, since the day the war in Ukraine began, American media outlets have spoken to scores 
of people from Ukraine, and they have done scores of interviews with Ukrainian President Zelensky. We ourselves have put in a request for an interview with Zelensky, and we hope he accepts. But the interviews he's already done in the United States are not traditional interviews. They are fawning pep sessions, specifically designed to amplify Zelensky's demand that the U.S. enter more deeply into a war in Eastern Europe and pay for it. That is not journalism. It is government propaganda, propaganda of the ugliest kind, the kind that kills people. At the same time, our politicians and media outlets have been doing this, promoting a foreign leader like he's a new consumer brand. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House. But they're trying anyway. Almost three years ago, the Biden administration illegally spied on our text messages and then leaked the contents to their servants in the news media. They did this in order to stop a Putin interview that we were planning. Last month, we're pretty certain they did exactly the same thing once again. But this time, we came to Moscow anyway. We are not here because we love Vladimir Putin. We are here because we love the United States, and we want it to remain prosperous and free. We paid for this trip ourselves. We took no money from any government or group, nor are we charging people to see the interview. It is not behind a paywall. Anyone can watch the entire thing, shot live to tape and unedited, on our website, TuckerCarlson.com. Elon Musk, to his great credit, has promised not to suppress or block this interview once we post it on his platform, X, and we're grateful for that. Western governments, by contrast, will certainly do their best to censor this video on other less principled platforms because that's what they do. They are afraid of information they can't control. But you have no reason to be afraid of it. We are not encouraging you to agree with what Putin may say in this interview, but we are urging you to watch it. You should know as much as you can. And then, like a free citizen and not a slave, you can decide for yourself. Thanks. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-36DA, turnkey.pro tax line. Fascinating. What is so frightening about that uh, proposition? Um, well, it's not approved by Obama through Joe, Bi- through Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, the 80s wants their foreign policy back or something. Well, I, well, I, um, hmm. um, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Obama because I remember him telling uh, Putin stooge Medvedev that, uh, right. you know, just get through the election and then we'll. Uh, I'll have room. He'll have room to maneuver. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, once upon a time, there was a lot more friendliness in that direction. You know, it's not, I don't think they want their uh, foreign policy back in America. I think they want to go back to those uh, reasonably priced puppet shows that Bernie Sanders went to uh, on his honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> when, when uh, you know, everything was right with the world and a, and a good uh, red like uh, Bernie from could bring maple syrup over, maybe some pairs of jeans uh, and uh, have a nice exchange with his comrades in Moscow, you know. That's what I think. But it is it, it, the, the, the hue and cry about Tucker Carlson. 
if Tucker Carlson behaves like a Putin stooge, gives one of those fawning interviews that we've seen so many of with Met, with uh, Zelensky, as he rightly points out, People then that watch is it. well, well, they may watch they they may still watch it, but Tucker Carlson would do himself reputational damage if he did that. Kind of like uh, the way Jake Tapper interviews uh, Biden, for example. Yeah, well, or, or yeah, I mean, right, right, spin the wheel and pick a name out of right. the the D.C. press corps. And, and and by the way, you know, this is not exactly like unprecedented. You know, I mean, Mike Wallace interviewed Saddam Hussein. Um, I think uh, a world who, leader at war is yeah. news. And uh, yeah, uh, right. Should, I'm a I'm a newsman. That's what I grew up doing for 40 years before uh, the newspapers changed and became propaganda rags for the left. And I just think that it's news. And if you're a newsman, you go to cover it and, and let and the I, people know. Right. And I, I think Tucker is over the target when he talks about their fear of people who think for themselves. Yes. You you are only supposed to consume and regurgitate our propaganda. No one else's. What we tell you. We can't watch. That's why we have to have news guard to guard us from the news. Yes, right. We we can't watch an interview with an obnoxious uh, autocratic killer like Putin and and remember that he is that person. Remember that he is that person, Uh, that he is a, you know, KGB communist uh, and and that he did invade Ukraine and and we we can't factor that in when we listen to his rationale for the things that he does. When so many, I remember when so many journalists would interview Castro and avoid, yeah, of course, and avoid the dried blood on his hands. How, how many uh, Western journalists, when uh, President Xi was in San Fran? Or, or corporate leaders, for that matter, all applauding, you know, falling yeah. over themselves to applaud. How it's many so asked? Clean. How, how many asked about the Uyghur concentration camps? Oh no, no, that's uh, we we don't even have the administration that we are, even not even our government officials do that. Oh, don't make anybody uncomfortable. No, because you have to have a luncheon with C, raise your glass, and uh, toast him as John Kerry and Joe Biden did when they were business partners, right? Corey and Woodlawn. Uh, good morning, guys. Yeah, I, I'm glad that Tucker Carlson gave his website because most individuals should go directly to websites. These social media platforms are doing the exact same thing. Uh, we, I run the Facebook page for Woodlawn. They dial it down if I say something they don't want to, th- they don't want to hear, and they dial it up when uh, I'm saying things that are innocuous to them. So, um, also, uh, Dan, I do want to say to you, we're ha- we're hosting a Woodlawn Summit at the University of Chicago this year. We do it every year. This is our 15th year. And I would love for you to come and uh, talk to some of the uh, residents in Woodlawn about the, some of the concerns in our community. Uh, yeah. If you, if you, that would uh, be great. Yeah, if I, if I'm happy to do it if I'm around. Um, you just, uh, can you just email me the details? Uh, yes, sir. Dan that. at danprof.com. Dan at danprof.com. Just email me, Corey. I'll get back to you. Uh, thanks, Corey. Um, yeah, uh, go to the websites, johncastnews.com, amgreatness.com to get my podcast. Yeah, go to the websites directly. And then make up your own minds. Dude, oh, my God, could, somebody can watch something and, and disagree, uh, consume something and not be completely 
uh, reprogrammed by what they consumed. I mean, it, it's so hysterical. All I, of this. I read. I read Maureen Dowd in. Um, of course. In uh, where do I, where do I read her? And uh, New York in, Times. Real, no, a real clear politics. Oh yeah. But I don't turn into a commie because <laughs> yeah. I'm doing that. Of course. I mean, you you're you're supposed to consume content that uh, runs afoul of your worldview or your perspective on a particular issue or item or exactly. person. You know why? Because we're only chumbalones want to be fed the same food all the time. Frank in uh, West Chicago. Hey, good morning. I got two comments if I can make uh, real quick. Uh, uh, the Dems are really pushing uh, aid to uh, Ukraine. I'm wondering what kind of kickback are they getting? And second of all, uh, you know, I married an Italian girl. I live in Italy. I moved back here. I have a son, natural citizen of USA. You know, I've been here 10 months, and and, and we can't leave until uh, the U.S. government gives us uh, the okay to leave. And if we, sh- we should leave prior to that, we're going to lose all the money we spent on lawyers and everything else. I don't understand the reasoning behind it. We have a son who's an American son. How could they deprive the son of her mother? I, I just don't understand. How old is he? Letting all these... He's going to be four on the twenty third of this month. Did you teach and, him to kick, I, kick? Did you teach him to kick the ball with his left foot? Because America <laughs> needs no, I, what America needs is left footed. Oh, jeez, oh, left footed. outside back. Actually, both feet. Thank actually, you, my friend. Actually, both feet. Because I appreciate it, guys. If I can hear your answer, thank you. Thanks for the call, Frank. Um, and, and in terms of that, you know, I don't know the particulars in terms of any advice right, and counsel right. to give you on immigration law, but. But with respect to the banks, well, I mean, it's not that they're getting kickbacks now necessarily, but, you know, Jamie Dimon is poised to be the head of the Ukraine reconstruction project when the the war ends. So that's where they get paid off is when they rebuild that country, uh, you know, backed by the West, I'm sure. And you know how many you know how many Ukrainians will have uh, a mule called Mitch or Joe? When they in their in their peasant farms, <laughs> I know because my father had a a mule called Truman. Mm. Same thing after World War Two. Right. Animal Farm Redux. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM five sixty. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, yesterday, the uh, appellate court, the D.C. appellate court, uh, in uh, an unsurprising fashion, rejected Trump's argument that he has immunity from prosecution in the J6 case. Um, They also put an expedited timeline on his opportunity to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. Uh, Why did they do that? Well, because um, they want to get this in before November. That's why. Uh, If you don't believe me, listen to what is emanating from... Joe Obama world. 
uh, Neil Cattell, who was the Solicitor General under Obama, uh, his concern that the uh, charges against Trump will not be adjudicated before November 6th, particularly these federal charges. I am officially now at the freakout stage. Um, I've resisted <laughs> that for a long time, but we are now. You don't at the typically point. freak out, so that's important. Right. Yeah, no, I think we're now at the point, to use a different legal phrase, justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, I can't imagine a more compelling need for speed than the idea that American citizens deserve to know before the election whether a candidate for office is a felon and an insurrectionist. And it's even more galling to me because this is an easy case. There is no responsible constitutional scholar who thinks Donald Trump is right, that there's an absolute immunity that a the president can go and order Navy SEAL Team 6 to go murder his political opponent and then go and murder the senators who would try him for impeachment. That cannot possibly be right. And Judge Chutkin set a fast schedule here. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what the Court of Appeals is doing right now. But I can tell you that I'm really worried that it, this delay is going to meet, put the trial past June. Uh, it's possible that Trump will try and go to the Supreme Court after he loses on the Court of Appeals. That that can take months. This is a real problem. Do they teach uh, turgid psychosis in uh, law school now? They, is this guy they, a lawyer? They do. Uh, well, he was the Solicitor General for the uh, Obama <laughs> okay. administration, yeah, so okay. the answer yes. is yes. yes of uh, also, uh, you know, uh, this uh, gab session that uh, was going on uh, that was being moderated by Jen Saki, former White yes. House spokeswoman, as she's giggling about this because she's a serious person. Uh, and Andrew Weissman chimed in as well. He was one of the of other attorneys on MSNBC yeah. uh, doing his duty. Andrew Weissman, you'll remember, mm -hmm. was the hatchet man for Mueller in the Mueller Russian collusion investigation. Here's what he said. Neil and I are in violent agreement on this. Violent. And to just add a little fuel to the fire, I mean, the whoever whatever judge or judges are slowing this in the D.C. circuit, it is akin to what Judge Cannon is doing in Florida. Um, this is really not looking good for the federal judiciary uh, in terms of their responsibility to the electorate, whether it's Judge Cannon, who has basically issued a pocket veto on that case and has really slow walked that for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. And you have the same thing going on in the D.C. Circuit. So I agree um, with Neil that there really is no reason for the delay. And if well, um the, what, the, the, the delay. I mean, he has an opportunity to appeal to the Supreme Court. Jonathan Turley, George Washington University law professor, tweeting out the uh, D.C. Circuit Court added a wrinkle on scheduling by saying that Trump has only until February 12th to file the Supreme Court. The standard rules would allow Trump 90 days. Why if he wait? Does not Off with his head now, Dan. Put it on the pike uh, now. I understand, Robespierre. Thank you. Um, if he does not file the appeal, the mandate returns to the district court, which can restart pretrial proceedings. However, if the judge restarts pretrial proceedings, it could again be interrupted by an appeal that could in, that that includes a possible emergency motion for the court to stay proceedings. That would go to Chief Justice Roberts, and he would likely send it to the full court. If a stay were issued, we'd be back to the possible filing of an en banc decision and then a later petition to the Supreme Court and months of delay in filings alone. So this is what... Uh, Weissman and Cattell are officially freaking out over 
as they so loyally said. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Professor Richard Epstein, the James, Par- James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Law and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Professor Epstein, thank you as always. Yes, nice to be here. I, I heard that. I want to tell you at the outset, there was a time long ago when Neil Katyal and I collaborated on several briefs. Um, I think his transformation is more dramatic than mine. And I regard <laughs> this case as having a rather different tone. One of the things that you note is that every time somebody wants to break down ordinary procedures in order to get something to trial, they have a collateral motive as well. And if you start to think about what's going to happen if Judge Chutkin tried this case in front of a D.C. jury, uh, there's going to be serious doubt that she's going to get it right, that they're going to get it right. The thought that a criminal judgment coming out of that court with this particular history is going to be authoritatively definitive on the question of whether or not Trump did or did not commit these various offenses is, I think, something that is very doubtful. And one of the reasons why I want the thing to be postponed past the election is I think that it's so incendiary that it could seriously distort things if there is a false judgment of criminality in this case that would get reversed on appeal. Just imagine what would happen if in the interim the election turned the other way. And so what they do is they seem to think about one set of horror stories that's being involved. Um, But I can think of another set of horror stories that have been involved because you just have to compare the speed and the absolute vengeance that this case is taking place as compared to the slow and leisurely walk with respect to any deliberations of Hunter Biden. Uh, those are not going to happen until mañana time. Nobody's going to bring that case to trial before the election because of what it will do for Biden. And then you want to get some other information about the insurrection. Ray Epps, who was out there on the scene urging uh. people to go into the Capitol building, got $500 in community service from the Biden administration. And so what you have to assume is that the people who are talking this way on uh, whatever it's M- MSNBE, uh, are representing the pillars of justice when, in fact, the Biden administration, particularly Merrill Garland, who's its attorney general, are absolutely skewed in every conceivable thing that they start to do. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I have never seen a Justice Department that has been so pious on the one hand and so corrupt on the other. It's really a rather sad state for America uh, that this kind of stuff well, is getting worse. Can't we do and something... Can't you do something useful, both of you? You're both lawyers, Mr. Wow. Epstein and one Dan is a, one, one is a real lawyer and I, the other is yes, a talk show host. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, can't you gin up or come up with some crimes that related to the border that uh, Joe Biden and his friends have, have accomplished and then try him in Waco, Texas and put all the – because I hear Waco is extremely conservative, and I would like to see a federal trial of, by jury there of these. Look, I mean, I have the following illustration. <coughs> it's a plague on both your houses. Yes. I think this is a political election. And to go after Biden under the same kinds of situations where he probably does have presidential immunity for official acts done when he's in service would be terrible. I don't want either of these yes. cases to go forward. I think that the political situation is fraught enough, and the idea that a partisan prosecutor before a hostile judge in an utterly hospitable jury technique is going to give us the truth is is one of these laughable myths that happen all too often. I mean, all these guys are really very much after Trump. I want to hear somebody who's neutral, 
to say that this particular imperative works. And when you get former prosecutors who botched a lot of other cases and really went on some witch hunt, it's not particularly terrible. You remember what they said about the Mueller hearings, which was a terrible mistake and a lot of abuse of prosecution. Poor Mr. Mueller, not only did he not write the particular indictment, he probably didn't read it and he certainly didn't understand it. And if you'll note, he has utterly disappeared from public. Yes. Uh, and, and there's a reason for that, because massive incompetence has started to take place. And if you want to talk about crazy actions on impeachment, the first Valenko case is an impeachable case when the president has power over foreign affairs. And that was an absolute hang job. And with respect to the second case, I think, in fact, it was uh, very much an overwrought thing. It's one of these really delicate type situations where you don't know whether Trump's rantings are protected by free speech or whether they're a source of some kind of criminal activity. The double jeopardy issue, which was not involved yesterday, is, I think, extremely important in this case. And I expect, I think, Trump should win on that one, given the, all the circuses that went on in the first impeachment case. Uh, I think the immunity defense, as stated, is, in fact, wrong. Uh, but I do think uh, that the risk that the Trump people point out that there's going to be a witch hunt against everybody who leaves office is a very real kind of risk that you have to worry about. Um, and so I am not particularly pleased about that. I remember my friend John Yu, um, he said something in office, much of which I disagreed with. And then there were efforts to try to prosecute him afterwards, which went nowhere, but show essentially that it's going to be a pretty hard line to draw between egregious behavior that you commit in the official office and the kinds of stuff that happened here. And so that's the worry that you're about. Uh, so far, there's no sign of it going any further. We hope it keeps that way. I'm a little uneasy, I have to tell you, about using expedited dates for governing appeals. Uh, yeah. Generally speaking, we give people rights because we think they're important. And when Smith tries to invert the order and eliminate the Court of Appeals and do all of this stuff, Generally speaking, when you're engaged in a regular behavior, even under extraordinary circumstances, it's dangerous because what happens is these rules are designed to protect the guilty as well as the innocent, or the controversial case as well as the simple one. And what they're trying to do is to expedite the process. It's the accused who has the right to a speedy trial. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the prosecution that option. Excellent point, uh, as always. I, the the underlying substance of the Jan 6 case against Trump, what's your assessment of it? Well, I think it's a really very, very hard case. I mean, to call this an insurrection, I always thought was absurd from beginning to end. Uh, an insurrection isn't two people getting together to try to alter the outcome of an election. It's what happened in 1861 when you had a full-scale war, and the insurrectionists were officials and military people who were in the Confederate services. We've had other kinds of insurrections. There was one right after the Spanish-American War in the Philippines, which was dealt with firmly by then President McKinley. Um, but there you had a bunch of armed forces uh, fighting the government, hitting in the country. There was a war. And so I don't think you're even close to insurrection land unless you have an armed force with a prolonged attack of what's going on. If election obstruction is a form of, of, of insurrection, then every activity that took place in the South during the Jim Crow era was an insurrection, and none of them were tried that way. Um, so I regard this as crazy. I also think it's completely improper to say that the president is actually covered by the cause. He is the one who appoints the officers and the entire structure. <coughs> Of that clause makes it very clear uh, that the ability of Congress to waive these things 
mean that you're dealing with appointed officers, not the president who's elected. And the idea that this is self-executing when a bunch of random people in 50 states can bring all sorts of action against him is not the way you run. What self-executing meant is we have passed the 14th Amendment. It says that former slaves are now citizens. You don't need legislation to do what the act is done. It is not self-executing to have a bunch of random people go and sue, often on very dubious theories, with lots of hostilities. The general rule that I took of the raise from the uh, Nixon impeachment, the reason he resigned from office is that the Republicans abandoned him, and rightly so, for what he had done. In this particular case, it's all on one side of the political aisle. Everybody on the other side of the political aisle doesn't do it. When you have red-blue impeachments in the form that you're having in this particular case, it calls the legitimacy of the entire political system into question. And I'm going to say publicly, I think the worst behavior I've ever seen on behalf of an attorney general has happened under Attorney General Garland's watch. Uh, the um, the case in Fulton County, just on the ethics of uh, the prosecutor there, Fawny Willis, hiring the prosecutor, <laughs> the special prosecutor, turns out to be her boyfriend, and now there's a dispute about whether she became her boyfriend after she hired him or but it was before she hired him. There's, of course, the question about the money that she's authorized in terms of paying him for his services, and but she didn't get any money except they're on vacation together. So, I mean, just so 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 all of that. That does if 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 you were presiding, would Fawny Willis have to recuse herself? Would uh, or the special prosecutor, both of them? What what what's what's your ethical well, I think distillation it's, it's, it's of that? More serious than that. I mean, <clears throat> first of all. It doesn't matter when the affair began. If it began afterwards, then they have to disconnect from the case. Uh, this is not a case where Trump gets a dismissal because of prosecutorial irregularity. But what happens is they have to be removed from the case. They may well be impeached, but that's collateral. And then uh, two things that are not noted. You cannot leave the case in the office because everything they did is tainted by everything that happened. So you have to assign it to another attorney in another county uh, who will take over the thing from her. And the second thing has to do with work product. In these cases where there are prosecutorial irregularities, all the work product is tainted by what has happened with respect to the presiding officials. And so that has to be removed. And the whole case has to start over again. Now, I've read well, that. Well, but, 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 Professor, we can't do that because we've got to get everything done before, you know, the election, you see. You get Weissman all I, I, upset. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not as cynical as you guys about them, but I think they're hopeless. Uh, but I think it's really that. <laughs> Just sticking to this, I mean, I've been involved in cases where attorneys have been, have been dismissed, and the whole case has to start over from the beginning. Nothing would be carried over. Um, if she really wanted him to be put to that situation, uh, what she should have done is kept it within the office and followed normal rules. Even contracting out this thing to somebody else is very dubious. And then when you start to see that he coordinates with the Biden administration by meeting with them in private or in some circumstances, it all has a stink associated with respect. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, I will never defend what Donald Trump did on January 6th. I thought he was asinine and juvenile. Uh, but asininity and juvenile are not capital offenses in this world. They're not even criminal conduct. What they're doing is, in fact, right over the edge. Yes, so yes. What you're seeing here is all sorts of very dubious uh, maneuvers taking place to convict this man on the theory that the public has a right to know what a bogus story is going to determine. And I think, in effect, that it's a kind of a lasting disgrace to the legal system that this stuff has started to happen. 
I thought the same thing about the first impeachment. I thought a little bit less confidently about the second one. I think that all of these trials could be stopped in the double jeopardy issue. Generally, you could be tried only once in the federal system. A trial includes an impeachment trial, just as it includes a military trial, both done under very different means with civil cases. And if he's acquitted there for what is associated with January 6th, that binds the whole case. So it's a very much more different kind of defense than the other one. And I think it should be there. Uh, Judge Chutkin wrote about this. I thought it was kind of a weak argument on the other side. It may well yet prevail, but it certainly has to be heard. And if my voice were to do anything, I would say you could not go ahead with this case. Having once had a shot at him in a senatorial tribal, you can't bring it anywhere else. So I think there are many more obstacles that lie there. And, you know, they talk about justice being denied. You know, we have the same thing about kangaroo court. So one of the problems that you have to remember is there are always two maxims that go in equal and opposite direction. You could go much too slow, justice denied. You could go much too fast, kangaroo court. And what's always typical of the Trump opponents is they assume that one kind of error is paramount and the other kind is irrelevant. If you're running a serious legal system, you have to consider both. And that seems to be beyond the capability of anybody who works on MSNBC. (laughs) Professor Richard Epstein, James Parker Hall, Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Law, Senior Lecturer at University of Chicago. Professor Epstein, thank you as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And Professor Epstein joined us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Iframi this morning. John Cass, johncassnews.com. What's up? John, uh, this is interesting and unsurprising, as uh, our uh, next guest will tell you. It's unsurprising. I mean, this is what uh, the left is uh, committed to do. Republicans are behind the list hysteria thing uh, on queso, because it's really upsetting me when Mike Scott read that. The, the Listeria listen. outbreak of queso uh-huh. affects my life because I like queso and ruffles and scotch and soda during the Super Bowl. All right. Well, maybe there'll be a, a government program you can sign up for Me to get too. your allotment of queso. Um, I'm talking about uh, this debt forgiveness business. And uh, the state of Connecticut is uh, the first to move to uh, eliminate medical debt. Residents of Connecticut, no, this is at the state level, Ned Lamont, the governor there. Uh, The residents of Connecticut would be eligible if their medical debt equals 5% or more of their annual income or if their household income is up to 400% of the federal poverty line. So that would be about 120 grand for a family of four. 5% 5% or more of their annual income, or if their household income is up to 400% of the federal poverty line, you can get medical debt forgiveness. The projection is that would be a billion dollars worth of forgiveness. Boy, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really a, a difficult thing because, on the one hand, you've had a backdoor government takeover of health insurance and, medical, by extension, medical care in this country. Right. We don't have single-payer, but 
we don't have the sort of competition that a free marketeer like I would like to see. We have a system where the government is always the middleman, the largest purchaser of healthcare services, uh, which is why nobody knows what anything costs, right? This is what Steve Forbes famously said. In most businesses, if you have um, a, a, a more demand than supply of a good, that is good news. In healthcare, we call that a crisis. Um, and it's because of the government distortions. And so now you have this situation where you say, well, the government uh, has created these artificially high prices, as it always does. You know, government intervenes and central planning creates surpluses and shortages and these externalities. And so, uh, so the artificially high prices, now they're coming in to be the savior. This is student loan debt redux. Mm-hmm. So – the one they say, well, yeah, oh, yeah, I get the government created this problem, and now they're misapplying the wrong remedy, which is what they do. And then you're going to have the other aspect of this. People are going to be on the outside say, wait a second. Yeah, damn right you should uh, eliminate my medical debt or some portion of it. I see these governments at the federal, the state, local level spending hundreds of millions, billions in places like Illinois and New York on health care coverage for migrants, non-citizens, where's mine? But that where's mine attitude where everybody looks to the government and says, where's mine and I should be in front of you in the line, in the queso line, I mean, it just perpetuates the endless expansion of government and the shrinkage of the individual. They don't care. It's it's it's, Mia. That's all they care about. Yeah, I mean, this is how the state puts people into God's, you know, little acre East of the Rock and West of the Hard Place. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined, uh, as always, by Steve Moore, economist, GovZilla author. Steve, thanks, as always. Hey, good morning, guys. And by the way, Dan, um, don't say I didn't tell you so. I know. I I predicted on this show probably a year and a half ago when Biden started this idiocy of uh, forgiving hundreds of billions of dollars of student loan debt. And by the way, I don't know if you saw the exit poll in New Hampshire found 78% 78% of Democrats approve of that policy. I'm <laughs> just wiping up. Well, it, well, it's the old, um, you know, Peters, the Peters are 100% in support of Paul paying for everything. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. Right. It's not right. And so I had predicted on your show that it was, this wasn't going to stop with student loan debt. And I, I thought the, the next shoe to drop would actually be credit card debt. But apparently now it's medical bills that you don't have to pay because somebody else will pay. There's enough um, Pauls out there to pay for uh, for uh, Peter's debt. And then, of course, and by the way, the Pauls are me and you and everybody listening to this show because there's no such thing as forgiveness. Somebody has to pay the bill, right? And so you've got medical bills. Now, you've also, I think, because the report just came out yesterday from the Federal Reserve Board, did you know there's $1.17 trillion of credit card debt? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a real burden on mm-hmm. these people. I think I think the taxpayer is going to have to help out here and, and pay those bills. And then, you know, you have a lot of unpaid mortgages. People are having a tough time paying their mortgage, Dan. I'm having a hard time paying my mortgage. I don't know if you'd be willing to chip in to pay my mortgage for me. Why? Uh, it's, not, it's not a problem. I did it during COVID. I did well, it in 2008, 2009. Why, why, why shouldn't I do it again? I want Steve and Dan yeah, to go so, with me to Best Buy. I got a, a lot of stuff to buy. I might as well fill the credit card up. And then see what happens, because I won't. Well, of course, because this is what, you know, this is the whole point um, uh, of, of what they're trying to do. And, and this is called a moral hazard. When you do something 
and then you're encouraging the you know the the whole point of this is to encourage bad behavior. So I said this when they did the student loan program. I guarantee you, uh, guys, that no longer will people pay their student debt. You'd be crazy to pay off your student debt. Why would you? Why would you? I mean, the government's going to come along and just forgive it again. Um, and so this has turned into a calamity. Uh, everybody else's bills are, are – we're responsible for everybody else's bills. It's going to bankrupt the country, and people are going to rack up more and more debt, and somebody's going to come along and, quote, forgive it. But they've got us, don't they? They've got the American people being um, – uh, to borrow from de Tocqueville, they've got, they've got the American people bought, fully bought in, more so each successive year – in being bribed with their own money. Well, but there's a reason why the 18 to 29 year old vote is being dominated by Democrats today. Hey, he's going to write off. Uh, he's going to pay my more in my uh, rental bill. He's going to pay my. Uh, he's going to pay for my student loan debt. He's going to. I mean, come on, this is craziness. You know, Reagan said it so well that a big government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you've got. This is a trap. This is a road to. What is it? The what Surfdom. was it? Hayek, the, the road Surfdom. to Surfdom. That's what yeah. we're that's what we're on. No question about it. I mean, it's just it's it's depressing because most people don't get it, and and then there's so much government largesse being distributed in so many different directions. You just, I mean, it's like it's like everybody's in one of those uh, air machines that blows dollar bills, and you try and grab as many dollar bills as you can. But right, it's that's so that's true. they put the entire country in that position, and we put ourselves in that position. Except the people who are actually working and you know doing the right thing. And this is the thing, you know. Be, you punish what we do in Washington is punish virtue and we reward, uh, you know, vice and excess. Yeah. And, you know, I, and by the way, I'm guilty of this. I take out my credit card all the time now. I, I, you know, it's like so easy, right? You just you just flash that plastic and you impulsively buy things. And, and then, you know what? Uh, somebody's going to come along and pay the bill for you. But who's going to pay our $34 trillion national debt? Who's going to pay for that? The Chinese? Mm-hmm. So how, how's that going to how will that manifest itself, gentlemen? When, uh, what what, gonna, will, what will happen? They'll yeah. just take our houses, our children. What will? How will they? How will <laughs> they? It means. Right. It means because they're not. I guarantee you, this China isn't going to forgive our debt. <laughs> they're going to demand payment, and what it means is our kids are going to be working for the Chinese kids. <laughs> All right. Rocco and Moose are going to be sent over from uh, Beijing to collect. Um, So uh, uh, um, Biden uh, has been talking in the last uh, several days about um, big grocery and big candy bar. And uh, they need to be reined in because they're preying on people. That's these prices that people are greedy. They're greedy. They're yeah, they're they're it's predatory. Uh, pricing by Snickers, Snickers and by by Albertsons and so forth. Leave my yeah. babies alone. But yeah, okay. So here's the thing that's so uh, you know uh, laughable about this. First, first of all, I love these politicians like Joe Biden, who's been in politics. What? Yeah, maybe 45 years he's been in politics, and I don't think he's probably ever had really a had a real job. And if he ever if he ever did, he certainly forgot <laughs> about that. So I love these people who are politicians like AOC and Joe Biden who keep talking about greedy companies and their profits. It's like, OK, first of all, you go out and start a business and make a profit and see how see how how easy that is to do, because it ain't easy. You know, two out of three small businesses fail. It's tough to, to make a profit. And then if the companies make a profit, you're greedy. You know, come on. Without businesses, profit is my favorite word, and I'm going to say it on your show. I like profits. That's what makes the world go round. 
profit. And they think somehow if a company's making profit, we have to take a billy club and hit them over the head. And, and so, so shrinkflation is not greedflation. So in other words, uh, shrinkflation, you know, is the size of the Snickers candy bar. It's the, uh, yeah. you, the the airlines that are lowering their their ticket prices, but everything else is a la carte. I mean, that you know, this is being discussed now. This is the way that companies are trying to um, maintain customer loyalty, but also abide their bottom line. Now, can you explain something to me, uh, guys? Because mm-hmm. this is the part of this I don't understand. I mean, I understand the, quote, greedy corporations. Um, why is it just in the last three years companies become greedy? I mean, you know, we had 2% inflation in prices under Trump. Weren't they greedy back then or just just the last couple of years they've become greedy? Right. It's whenever um, somebody is complaining <laughs> about prices of something being too high, that's where you know corporate greed exists. That's basically the uh, the handle of the of the left, isn't it? You know, anytime anytime you get enough people complaining, grocery prices are too high, stickers bars too high, then all of a sudden it's it's that that's where corporate you greed two, rears its ugly head. You two have to understand oil uh, gas about, prices. Same what thing. about the poor? Yeah, what about the poor workers, gentlemen? Like the poor yeah. the poor tipped workers, like in a restaurant. Yeah, wait, you wait a minute. I can't stand this capitalism where they destroy the hard-working worker. I know. Well, you don't understand. Dan doesn't care about poor people. Yes, right. (laughs) As an immigrant, wait, Dan, as an immigrant, as an immigrant, as a son of an immigrant, we had, my dad was a waiter at the Conrad Hilton and served his family. Now what's happening to it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's everybody is entitled to everybody else's money. That's the great thing about the socialist state we're in. You know, I'm entitled to Dan's money, and Dan's entitled to your money. And the more money you have, the more they're entitled to it. And you know, by the way, but this is also going on. I don't know if you're following the story, but I want your listeners to be aware of this. Uh, that the are you following what the FCC? That's this agency in government or another regulatory agency. They oversee know you know the internet and stuff. And they're saying there 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 is a quote, and I'm using air quotes, disparate impact. You've heard that yes. term before. Yeah, of course. It's been, the, yes. the companies are discriminating yes. against uh, minorities, Hispanics and women and blacks, because there's, they're not giving access to the Internet to you know blacks the way they are with whites. Wait a minute. 94% of households in America have access to the Internet. It's one of the great miracles of the private sector technology revolution. And they're trying to find somebody somewhere that might not be getting the Internet, and that's a result of discrimination. So they're going to sue them. They're going to sue the companies that, that provided, you know, 94%. Uh, I mean, Dan, you and I are old enough to remember when less than half of Americans had Internet. Now it's almost universal. And they're saying, oh, wait a minute, there's a family that doesn't have it. They're discriminating. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's remarkable. It's uh, nonstop. I wanted to get your um, reaction as well to uh, Jay Powell's pronouncement last week. Uh, the anticipated uh, six rate cuts, uh, more yeah. going to be more like three rate cuts this year, it sounds like. And um, and just what that says, you know, without getting into stock picking, yeah. it's just what that says about the overall health of the economy as, as again, the binomics, they're, or they're pushing binomics, things are going well, low unemployment, job creation, uh, inflation is coming down, everything's right yeah. with the world, but 75% of the Americans disagree with that rosy yeah. picture. 
Yeah, I mean, Time Magazine, uh, their sec- you know who their second choice was to be man of the year? Of course, they picked Taylor Swift. You know who their second choice was? Travis Kelsey. Jerome Powell. Jerome oh, Powell. Yeah. <laughs> because, of course, he's done such a great job. This is the Fed chairman who took the inflation rate from 1.5% to 9.1%. Sometimes, somehow we're supposed to lionize this guy as some kind of economic savior. And as you just said, 70% of Americans still say the economy is headed in the wrong direction. Trump has a 20-point lead on the economy over Biden because things were so much better when he was president. And I love this thing. You know, the left is so indignant. It's, this is the latest line from the New York Times and the Washington Post. You know, the reason people feel so bad about the economies because those Republicans are always trashing it. You know, yeah, just right. the conservative media. It's the conservative Rooting media. against America. Like, right, yeah, yeah right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, right, the exactly. The journals, the conservative media to them. Yeah, d- yeah. Don't, don't you appreciate you what that. I've done for you? Get that microphone yeah. away from you, Dan, because you're not yeah. telling people the truth. Steve Moore, uh, economist, GovZilla author. Thanks as always, Steve. Appreciate it. All right. Your days are numbered, my friend. Yeah, well, they certainly are in more ways than one. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us. Steve Moore, join us on the turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J is John K. John Cass, johncastnews.com. Hello. John, uh, we talked a bit earlier in the program about uh, Tucker Carlson's announcement that he uh, will be sitting down to interview Vlad Putin. And the, you mean his, his announcement that he's going to actually be a journalist? Well, the hysteria that's ensued, because when Mike Wallace interviewed Saddam Hussein, he was an intrepid journalist. When Charlie Rose interviewed Bashar al-Assad, he's a heroic representative of the Fourth Estate. If Tucker Carlson interviews Vlad Putin, he's a modern-day Lenny Reifenstahl. You see how it works? Um, by the way, not not the first um, show host, newsreader, journalist, use whatever descriptor you'd like, to uh, sit down with Putin— He's always been a KGB dictator, but that didn't dissuade Babs, Baba, Baba Walters from sitting down with him, did it? No. Did she rub his head? Uh, it's funny. Um, I uh, uh, On Twitter, you know, where all intelligent conversation happens, uh, the uh, one of the responses I got to my post on this topic was, it's quite simple. Actually, Tucker is a Putin bootlicker. He will only shower him with praise, much like whenever anyone on Fox interviews Trump. Right. It's all the, you know, the the the, the, the tunnel vision. These are the uh, talking points. This is how you get the sheeple in line. Well, uh, th- this is this is this is the sheeple. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so if, if Tucker were to offer a fawning interview of Putin, as we discussed before, he only does himself reputational damage, which I thought the left would celebrate. So what are they so afraid of? Are, I, I guess they believe they're the only ones with the capacity to properly distill a conversation between or an interview between Tucker Carlson and Putin. A, any conversation, really. Just, and just, and and just, convey the takeaway that everybody else must uh, must describe to. Just like they're the only ones who can dictate 
to the courts what should be the uh, rendering of justice. Right. The same thing. So, um, and if you support Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin, then you're a Kremlin stooge. If you don't support another $60 billion to Ukraine, then you're a Kremlin stooge. If you don't put uh, the iconography on your social media, Ukraine flag, uh, Zelensky and his fatigues, whatever, then you're a Putin stooge. Okay, sure. What about being a Zelensky stooge? No such okay. thing. To fund no the such gangsters thing. of Ukraine. I no. guess we should take the money. Away we're trying to defend. We're trying to to protect that Ukrainian democracy. We're told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Daniel DePetris is a fellow at Defense Priorities. He's a syndicated foreign affairs columnist at the Chicago Tribune. They, they still publish, yeah, they and uh, Newsweek as well. Daniel DePetris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Hey, so, so um, what about uh, Tucker's interview with Putin? Does that uh, represent? Um, uh, collaborating with uh, a, a, an American enemy? Yeah, look, I mean, I have no problem whatsoever with, with Tucker interviewing Vladimir Putin. I mean, as you say in your opening segment, we've we've had reporters and, and journalists and, and commentators interview, you know, pretty bloodthirsty, horrible people before in the past. Yeah. And, you know, nobody really had much of an issue with it. I don't have much of an issue with Tucker talking about talking to Putin whatsoever. And if people feel that way, then, you know, that's their prerogative. But this is really an indictment of the entire debate surrounding the war in Ukraine. And, and you know, everybody has tunnel vision and nobody's willing to actually talk to people. They're, they're talking past people. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, about Eastern Europe before we get over to the Middle East, because uh, the animatronic secretary of state is there now trying to uh, negotiate the release of hostages, if there are any still alive, and some sort of extended ceasefire. But but uh, in uh, with respect to Ukraine, whether you support uh, more U.S. funding, more USA to Ukraine or not, um, was it a mistake for the supporters of that $60 billion to embed that funding into something that is as contentious right now as border security? Yeah, look, so, you know, the, the, it's, it was a strange combination because, you know, you look, immigration is sort of one of those third rails in American politics where, you know, we haven't had a comprehensive immigration bill in decades. I think, I think Reagan was the last time when yeah. we had some sort of bill. Um, you know, I, I feel like the Democrats probably thought they could bring um, Republicans around by tying this to immigration, and that was obviously uh, a bad bet. Um, you know, you have some Republicans in the conference who are just not interested in, in arming Ukraine anymore or funding Ukraine, um, and that's where we are. So we, when you when you talk about these very complex bills. Uh, you're going to have a bunch of wrenches thrown into the into the woodwork here, so yeah. Well, some some yeah. yeah some of the some of the other sorry one one more John, yeah. and then I'll let you go. But something else about this too, you know, it get it gets lost in in the conversation when it's sixty billion for Ukraine and this much for Israel and this much for Taiwan and this much for sanctuary cities and and these are the provisions in border security. It all it's hard to have all of these debates simultaneously with the sort of attention span, but the lack of detail. This has been a problem from the beginning of our uh, our, our military aid and humanitarian aid uh, to Ukraine, which is so. Tell me again, like just now, the sixty billion goes for what exactly, and we expect to Ukraine can achieve what exactly with it, and we're going to measure it how. Right. 
all great questions that uh, the Biden administration would answer, ideally, and they've been very kind of vague on all of these issues. $60 billion is basically a lump sum. So that could be used for military purposes, humanitarian aid, or economic aid. Um, and essentially, we, to, to the extent of anybody's tracking these numbers, I, I suspect somebody within the government is. But, you know, it, it would be nice to, to know with certainty where this money is going. Um, and, you know, I, you have Senator Rand Paul, Senator Mike Lee, some, some pretty staunch conservatives who've, who've been arguing for uh, special inspector general to ensure that the money is spent wisely. Uh, to date, we don't have that. So that 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 in, that in and of itself, a pretty uncontroversial thing to ask for, uh, that that's that's getting sort of dismissed. So that's, that's a bit concerning as well. Well, it's uh, the the uh, budget, sixty million is larger than the budget of the United States Marine Corps, according to Senator Lee, and uh, I don't think the American people want to spend that kind of money on Ukraine. I'm sorry. And I think this has been happening, this this trend, anti-big money, buck, you know, bucks, big programs for Ukraine, has been happening for the past, I don't know, six, eight months as, as uh, Ukraine has been losing the war. So is, is there a performance on the battlefield related to the support? Um, if there is, I haven't heard it, you know, um, supposedly if you talk to three administration officials, I suspect you have, you get three different answers as to what the performance metrics are. But if, if I was, you know, in the administration, I would, I would essentially judge it by how much land is Ukraine losing as opposed to how much land is it gaining? Uh, you know, right now that they're in a pretty tough, tough situation on the ground with, with their, uh, shortages in ammunition, and other support, uh, financial support mainly. So, you know, they have to hold their lines for the next year and hope that the Russians uh, sort of wind out of steam. And unfortunately for the Ukrainians, that doesn't, that doesn't appear to be happening because the Russians have more of everything. You know, they have more men, they have more ammunition, they have more money. Who credibly believes publicly that if, this, if Putin takes the portions of Ukraine that he's always wanted, that he that he'll what begin attacking Poland and uh, our friends in Budapest and Bucharest? Is that what what will happen next? Is that what what they're trying to sell us? And their difficulty in selling that, I think, doesn't that sort of leech leech onto the entire debate, so that American people know that it's not going to have they're not going to they believe that. Uh, Putin's not going to be that revanchist as as thought, and so what are we doing here? What are we doing spending our money when we don't have it for our own city, for our own country? Yeah, that argument that you know, if Putin wins in Ukraine, he yeah. would basically roll up his sleeves and and blitz through Eastern Europe like you know the Germans mm-hmm. did in 1939. It, it, it's sort of a ridiculous talking point that's. You know, it, it's not based on fact. It's based on emotionalism, and um, it, it's a way to basically get these lawmakers to sign checks. You know, and I, we've all been around long enough to understand that's that's basically what the aim is here. 
Um, yeah, the, the whole the yeah you know, the Iron Curtain will descend once again, right? But so something else though too. I mean, whatever Putin's uh, you know, woozy ambitions are about Mother Russia, uh, some just just on Ukraine again. You know, the the posture this administration takes when he says, "Well, you know, are are you imposing any? Um, uh, are you going to push or impose any mandates on Ukraine that's attached to the money?" Oh no 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 no! That you know we can we're not going to dictate to Ukraine the terms of peace and so on and so forth. Well, wait a second. If federal money, when it's distributed around this country domestically, there are always strings and mandates attached. You will do this or you won't do that, and you will or won't get the money based on your compliance with the strictures. But when it comes to providing foreign aid to Ukraine, we're just we're completely Pontius Pilate. We're hands off. Whatever you want to do and however you want to do it, you know. At, at some point, you say you, you would think you'd be um, concerned enough to say. I'm taking a big risk with you. We're going to support you because it's the right thing to do, because uh, Russia is America's enemy and Putin is a murderous dictator. And we don't want to see a stronger Russia. That's not in our interest. So we're going to support you. But it's not open ended and it's not unlimited. And, you know, with these armaments, with this humanitarian aid, uh, you're on this sort of timeline. You're on this sort of budget. And if you can't make it work, I'm sorry, but that's all we can do for you. But, they, but oh, we can't have that conversation. No, no, we can't. And uh, everything you laid out is perfectly reasonable. And I, I've been personally arguing, you know, several of those points for a long time. And you sort of get shouted down to the ether, as as you say, like, a, you know, a sympathizer of the Kremlin, which is just a lazy argument and that I, I would hope people don't take seriously. But, yes, we need to have these, these questions and these debates, and it needs to be honest. You know, it, America is a democracy. And you would think democracies have open, honest, uh, fact-based debates, but it, it just it keeps, you know, every month goes by with this war. It seems this war is an exception to, to, to what should be the, uh, the ideal scenario here. Well, the, uh, you, you make it that the, uh, the, the Biden Democrats have so embedded themselves into the whole idea of, the, of Ukraine winning, whatever that means, that they're unable to actually see around the bend. They're, they're, they've lost all perspective because it's all consumed by democratic political tribalism domestically here in the United States. Well, isn't it just that they, they're they not really interested in, in winning as so much as they're interested in making sure Ukraine doesn't fall before November? I guess, yeah. <laughs> questions for Dan. Well, I mean, I don't know what the administration wants, but I suspect, you know, they, by the amount of weapons that they that they have been willing to provide the Ukrainian army over the last two years, um, they they don't seem to be very persuaded persuaded by the fact that the Ukrainians can get more territory, right? And we've kind of seen that play out over the last nine months with with the counteroffensive that that kind of failed abysmally and and. So essentially, we're in a holding pattern now. You know, the administration, if, if they get this money passed, which looks increasingly unlikely, uh, this will be used for defensive purposes, not not to launch another counteroffensive. So, uh, as I mentioned, animatronic Anthony Blinken is in the Middle East right now. Um, the, uh, you know, and of course, domestically, we have the, you know, Maybe Brandon Johnson should go over there. He was able to get a ceasefire resolution through the city council. You know, he had four four aldermen take a walk. He cast a deciding vote. Maybe he should be over there negotiating the uh, 
the the uh, end of hostilities. But wh- where does that stand in terms of Israel's um, fundamental mission of eradicating Hamas um, in the conversation about uh, the, any sort of release of hostages uh, and any sort of um, extended ceasefire? I, it, it doesn't seem like that is uh, realistic at this stage. Well, it doesn't look realistic, but they are, there are active um, negotiations going on between <clears throat> Israel and Hamas, uh, obviously through intermediaries because they don't speak to each other for understandable reasons. Right. Um, the, the latest reports that I've, I've seen is um, essentially the Israelis have offered Hamas a six-week pause in the fighting in exchange for uh, you know Hamas releasing the rest of the hostages, and then in return Israel will release uh, Palestinian prisoners. And th- this is basically... You know, this is very similar to the week-long ceasefire back in November, uh, just at greater scale. So we're still in the middle of these discussions, and, and nothing is, is guaranteed for sure. No. But, 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 I mean, but, but fundamentally, uh, Hamas is going to have to um, surrender, either be eliminated or completely surrender for this to, to end, right? I mean, that, 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 is, that is a point at which Bibi cannot negotiate. Yeah, look, I don't see the Israelis, uh, if they even decide to do a, a ceasefire, it would be a temporary ceasefire, right? You know, Bibi Netanyahu is, has been reiterating the point time and again that he, he is not going to end the war until his objectives are met. Uh, we, can, we can discuss whether those objectives are realistic. I'm a, little, I'm a little doubtful of whether they are actually realistic. But on the separate question of whether the war will end soon, I, I just don't see it. And, you know, if you're looking at this conflict through neutral eyes— um, this could go on for another several months at least. What 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 is the uh, state of the Israeli offensive? I mean, in terms of its success, you know, trying to assess the success of Ukraine um, uh, repelling the Russians. What is the success that you would give the mark of success you would give uh, uh, Israel at this stage of the conflict? Yeah, I mean, if I had to grade them, you know, it, obviously it's hard to grade a military from the outside, but I would give them probably a C. And I say that because, you know, Hamas's military and political leadership is still alive and kicking. Um, they, they've they poured tens of thousands of troops into Gaza trying to route out the uh, Hamas tunnel network, which is pretty extensive and, and sophisticated. And I think the latest reports have been 30% have been neutralized, so they have a long way to go on that front. Um, and, you know, in terms of getting the hostages back, which was the top Israeli objective since the start of the war, that's that's obviously uh, to be determined. So, you know, their, their main objectives have not been met yet. And uh, we're, we're hitting month five now. We're going on month five of this operation. How Daniel long does he have? How long does uh, BB have in office? That's a very good question. Uh, you know, if, if I, if I uh, was an expert at Israeli politics and, and could predict that, I'd, I'd be... Uh, I'd be a lot. I'd be very, very rich and, and be making a living here. But Israeli politics is very, very unpredictable. But you know, Netanyahu is in a tough spot politically because he has to juggle right-wing ministers with moderate ministers, and it, it's a it, it's a juggling act, and it makes our politics look pretty tame in comparison, to, to be completely honest. Daniel DePetris, fellow at Defense Priorities, a syndicated foreign affairs columnist at the Tribune and Newsweek. Daniel DePetris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye. And he joined us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer.
you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and if Ramey is John Cass, johncastnews.com. Have you signed up for johncastnews.com yet? You should. Get uh, columns from John as well as a lot of other deep thinkers. Occasionally, John even lets me besmirch his uh, outlet with my always ravings. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. You're thank you, always John. welcome. And uh, you know, you and I are going to be. You know, we should have another Dan Prost column soon because you and I are going to be together in Naples talking to the the refugees of Chicago or in Naples, I guess, we're having a sort, some sort of event there. Yeah, that's in that's uh, next month, and then uh, we'll 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 have some beach time where you can um, put suntan lotion on my back and so forth. It'll be you a know, nice nice Dan, weekend for should, us. You should be, you know, I have to i I've got to get the, I got to get this column of yours, and your your um, commentary should be before every conservative mind in the country it's that important and i think that i think it's on the level of i've been listening to your you know your uh, podcast on american greatness and seen your commentary it is on the level uh, the intellectual level of uh, my hero victor davis hansen bdh i see you i see you in that in that realm well, I don't know about that, but you're talking about uh, a distillation of sentimental barbarism, right? I want to see. I want to see. Uh, I want to see a book and an essay, long essay, wow. on the nature of sentimental barbarism and the dangers of it. Once I return to being a scratch golfer, I'll consider <laughs> it. Um, so it's, it's a perfect segue to our next guest who has written another great piece, The Intersection of Identita- Identity Politics, which is an expression of sentimentality, uh, and law enforcement. And, uh, I mean, speaking of sentimental barbarians, you have one in New York City. He's the mayor, Eric Adams. Uh, we talked about this a bit yesterday, this remarkable riff that he went on, uh, touting the leadership of the city while casting himself as the Christ child. I mean, it's really something to listen to. Let's uh, hear it again. Eric Adams on uh, who he is, what he's doing, and who he's doing it with. Stand up. They need to see you. Deputy Mayor Williams Ison, Deputy Mayor Mira Josie, Deputy Mayor Amazar, Deputy Mayor Maria Torres Springer. Have you ever seen this much chocolate leading the city of New York? And then go down the line. Look, look who's here. This is representative of the city. That's why people are hating on me. You trying to figure out why they're hating on me? They're hating on me because those are, how many of you go to church? Ma'am, this is a Matthew 21 and 12 moment. Jesus walked in the temple. He saw them doing wrong in the temple. He did what? He turned the table. Came over. I went to City Hall to turn the table over. First woman police commissioner of color, first Spanish-speaking police commissioner, first uh, Spanish-speaking correction commissioner. Go through the line of what we're doing. 
You know, um, that's all real impressive, Mayor. But if you're a 62-year-old woman who was dragged on the pavement uh, by a illegal immigrant on a moped, part of a gang that the New York Police Department has uh, explained in detail, uh, responsible for some 60 uh, incidents of grand larceny and other crimes, you know, the comp- the, the, the um, melanin composition of the city leadership is a little less important to you than your life. While she's lying there grinning her teeth through a broken hip, I hope she'd have the foresight to uh, recall a as well, what how would Trump call it? One Corinthians. With yeah, me. when we when I when I became a man, I put away childish things. Mayor Adams, you have people being hurt. Well, and it's all self-inflicted, yeah. not just with the the no cash bail uh, gambit in New York, but then and 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 the lawlessness that has been exacerbated by the unwillingness to prosecute repeat violent offenders because of the prosecutors there like the prosecutors here in in cook county but also because eric adams as much as they're talking tough on law enforcement with respect to people in new york city uh illegally as they're in this country illegally he won't get off the policy that brings buses and buses and buses to new york city and and that includes a criminal element which the city administration has so stipulated it includes it's just the most remarkable thing. It goes on and on and on as long as people tolerate it, I suppose. Heather McDonald has a good piece on this topic, uh, this uh, legislation that uh, was uh, moved in the city council um, is just, you know, more piling on. Uh, you, have you had enough yet with the leadership of that city, that chocolate leadership that Eric Adams is, uh, is uh, describing says, no, you haven't had enough punishment yet. Heather McDonald is a Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. And also, uh, I actually did uh, a conversation uh, with Heather McDonald on my podcast, which you can get at amgreatness.com and all the other podcast platforms a couple uh, weeks ago. It was very good, as always. The Decadence of Identity Politics is her most recent piece. Heather McDonald, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, Dan and John. It's great to be with you. And I, I just have to say, somebody who is invoking diversity or his identity is doing so because he has no other accomplishments. Being female is not an accomplishment. Being black is not an accomplishment. Being gay is not an accomplishment. And if that's what you're up there touting, it's because you've got nothing else. We should absolutely stop this identity cult, but instead we have now the police that have bought into it. Not only in New York City do we have a new uh, stop form that is requiring the cops to put down the race and and sex uh, of of everybody that they stop virtually. I mean, this is not just the usual, uh, what's known in the legal field as a Terry stop, which is a more intrusive stop where somebody's not free to go. But if an officer just is trying to talk to crime witnesses, uh, to get as much information after a shooting, every single person that that cop approaches to say, did you see the drive-by, you know, can you give me any information, he's got to, to list the race and, um, and sex of that person, which is going to lead to enormous amounts of paperwork, slow policing down, all because of this phony idea that if the police stop 
more minority uh, civilians, it's because they're racist. That's not the case. The reason that there are higher numbers of stops of minority civilians is because they are in neighborhoods that are very high crime thanks to minority criminals. We are engaged in this complete uh, lack of truth, lack of honesty about the fact of inner city crime, and we're pretending that it does not exist, and instead we're blaming the cops for simply giving us a message we don't want to hear about the breakdown of the inner city. What is the policy aim of having too many, what is this called again, the, the legislation is? The how many stops at? How many stop? Yeah, what is the professed policy aim? If, I, if, I have to, if I'm a real cop, a real p- police, right, not the house cats, but the real coppers, homicide detective, somebody on the street, I've got to what, list all my witnesses by race and what, if I misgender <laughs> So, Jesus, if I misgender someone, madam, I thought you, you know, we've established what you are, madam. Now we're just talking about the price. Do I, am I disciplined on the form? The policy aim is to smoke out what they believe is endemic police racism. Mm -hmm. This, This is not about improving policing. It's about prosecuting this idea <clears throat> that we're blaming the messenger. And the, the California form that is now out this year is even worse. That's where you do get into the misgendering issue, John, where not only are our officers going to have to list the race of, of their people they stop, they have to list their own sexual identity. If they make a stop, they have to check boxes for the officer's gender. Are they a cisgender man? Are they a cisgender woman? Are they a transgender man? Are they a transgender woman? Or are they a non-binary person? And there's even more categories they have to fill out regarding the person they stopped. They have to say perceived sexual orientation, LGBT+, straight, heterosexual, and then the usual cisgender versus transgender. This is, it is absolute decadence. This is the people that are committed to identity politics who think that this is the most important axis for for understanding human existence that are simply promoting this into fields for which it's completely irrelevant. You know, that, that has nothing to do figuring out what the officer's sexual identity is, has nothing to do with fighting crime, but it's all about per, per, simply promoting this idea uh, that we should remain divided by these fake identity categories and that those are the most important things in our lives. And and by the way, it should be noted that there is a a bunch of uh, victims' families who are rallying in New York City who are rallying against this How Many Stops Act. Right. And in New York and in California, you have a group of p- police officer associations who have actually managed to get a temporary restraining order from a judge against this new eight-page form that requires officers to list their own sexual identities. Uh, so there's pushback, but who knows, you know, whether the judges will capitulate to this eventually or the victims will get a voice. Right now, you have the advocates that only care about criminals. The whole the whole Black Lives Matter movement 
is absolutely parts. indifferent to black to black victims. They've never once protested those black children that have been killed. Jocelyn Adams in, in Chicago. Was there a, a Black Lives Matter rally on her behalf? No, of course not. The, they decided to throw in their lot with black criminals rather than black victims. The, uh, and the official, the official Chicago, like the Cook County State's Attorney or the and in, in and Al, Alvin Bragg in New York, they participate by promoting this because they think in those terms publicly and direct the the dialogue to be all about racial politics rather than protecting, you know, some innocent black woman from being assaulted, having her hips broken by some Venezuelan gang. I mean, this is just. It is like a grotesque comedy. It, it's like something if you if it could be written if if Hieronymus Bosch were were a writer rather than a painter, he would do something like this. But he leaves it to Heather McDonald and Dan Proft to to explain it. But my God, it's just amazing. Well, amazing. I mean, um, is, is, this is not as serious as law enforcement, but it speaks to the larger cultural rot that you're describing, Heather. Legislation has been introduced in Illinois. You may want to take judicial notice of. The Secretary of State shall include data fields on annual report form that uh, a corporation will report the aggregate demographic information of its directors and officers, race, ethnicity, gender, disability, veteran, sexual orientation, gender identity. Uh, same thing with charitable organizations that report grants of a million dollars or more and so on and so forth. So this uh, counting by race and every other identity is... Um, uh, is quickening, if anything, in spite of the Harvard admissions case uh, at the Supreme Court, in spite of the uh, self-immolation of a couple of Ivy League presidents, it is still uh, on full throttle. Well, and it will continue to be on full throttle as long as we have these vast academic skills gaps and crime behavior gaps. We are insisting on equality of outcome in order to turn our eyes away from the fact that there is a huge failure of, of family culture, of education in the inner city, so that if you hire on the basis of merit and on colorblind excellence, you will not have a proportionally diverse workforce. That's not because we're a racist society today. It's not because employers are racist. It's because... 66% of black 12th graders don't even possess the most partial mastery of the most basic 12th grade math skills, like being able to do arithmetic. That's why Google does not have 13% black computer scientists or engineers, but we don't want to talk about that, and we would rather blame ourselves for phantom racism then acknowledge the fact that there are still very, very large skills gaps. And when it comes to crime, the reason we have black overrepresentation in the prison system is not because the criminal justice system is racist. It is not. It's because the police are going where crime is happening, where people are being gunned down in these barbaric drive-by shootings. And, and that's because of family breakdown again, where young black males are not being socialized and they're out there gunning down their gang rivals when they feel dissed. That's the problem. But instead, America would rather claim, declare itself white supremacist, something that Joe Biden can't tire of declaring, 
then looking hard on at the at the pathologies of inner city culture. Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the book When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. Heather, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dan and John. And she joined us on the Turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.